Welcome to the Kona Edge, where you'll discover what the best triathletes in the world do to give them the edge. Welcome on to yet another edition of the Kona Edge. I'm Brad Brown. It's awesome to have you with us today. And uh, yeah, I'm super, super stoked to be able to welcome our next guest onto the podcast. We've been chatting back and forth uh, for a while over email. Just been really uh, quite difficult to sort of coordinate schedules. He's been traveling uh, a, a ton uh, of late, and you'll find out more about why in today's podcast too. But uh, he is a well-respected uh, sports scientist. He lives in New Zealand, uh, originally from England, but uh, is doing some amazing things in various sporting codes. So uh, super, super chuffed to be able to welcome our next guest onto the podcast all the way uh, in the land of the long white clouds in Auckland, New Zealand. Please uh, give a warm welcome to Dr. Daniel Pease. Doc, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for um, having me, Brad. It's great. Great to be here. I'm super excited because I get to share some incredible athlete stories, and we're going to touch on yours as well. But I really want to dig into the scientific thing uh, side of things today, and, and I think I'm going to geek out in a big way, and I think a lot of people are going to love uh, this chat. But let's talk a little bit about your background before we, we get into what you were doing in Rio and, and, and that sort of thing, what you're doing now. But you, you come from a, a very competitive uh, triathlon background. So you, you, I mean, you were, you were really quick, and not that you aren't anymore, but at the, the sort of peak of your performance you're a racing snake of note yeah I was, I was not too bad um yeah i mean my life has been triathlon pretty much um um i started i did my first swim run event when i was just nine years old so my dad's a bit of a keen triathlete and um yeah and then i went through the british system i was a kind of um, british junior champion um did some high quality under 23 level um but then i kind of I just really, um, I finished, I was at Loughborough University and there I was mostly there as training and doing a sports science degree. But after that finished, I got the opportunity to actually go and be, have a scholarship at the Leeds um, Performance Centre, which is where the Alistair and Johnny Brownlee were at at that time. And they were just juniors and I was, um, I got the opportunity to do a master's degree in sports science and also be the assistant coach there. And that kind of took me off as an athlete um you know full-time like just really focusing on myself as an athlete and focus on triathlon for more of a sports science coaching standpoint so yeah i've never looked back since really do you think it's helped you from from an athlete perspective having that sports science background that you've you've been able to be really analytical about what you do personally or has that been a bit of a hindrance that you almost feel like you're a a hamster or a a guinea pig and you're testing everything out on yourself and, and it becomes a bit taxing um I, don't, I said I said this. I say this to a lot of people: is I, w- I wish I knew what I know now um, when I was just you know 15, 16, when I was in my early early teens, because I think I would have been a much better athlete as a result. Um, but I reckon I do think you get into the stage where I agree with you that you can have you can almost have a lot um, what this you know paralysis by analysis. But I think as you learn more and more and more, and you and your knowledge gets good, you can almost separate the the shit from the clavor part of my French, you know, and you can and it actually and it actually get gets you quite um you can actually use it to its full advantage without really without really it hindering you. Yeah. Alright. And I, I find it quite interesting too that you you I mean you talk about growing up around the sport and, and a dad who who's quite a keen triathlete. Uh, 
what is it? What's the fascination with triathlon as a as a sport? And we'll touch on some of the other things you did with regards to to rowing and and, and the Rio Olympics. But but why for you has it been triathlon? Um, I guess it's one of those natural things that you. I always found I was it was good at it, you know. And I think I think that's always the case is when you're younger and you you try a variety of different sports. And I did I did try a variety of different a variety of different sports, but for some reason triathlon was a thing that I was. I was best at. I loved the fact that um, I loved the diversity of three different sports as well. And I still love that diversity of three different sports. I think there's no better way to keep fit and healthy than have that um, that diversity. You know, what am I going to do today? You can swim, you can cycle, you can run. And, um, and I, yeah, I just, I, I just fell, in, fell in love with it. And I, I mean, and I have, I have a lot of friends who, um, who were, you know, training with me when we were younger and they carried on going and going and tried to chase a professional dream. But I think I was quite fortunate that I, I jumped out of trying to chase the dream of being a professional quite early on. And, and I never really lost that passion as a result. And I think that passion still, still sits with me today. That, that is a, a real thing. I, I mean, you talk about burnout in the sport. Uh, we see it so often, people who do chase, and not necessarily just to chase the professional dream, but who chase the, the age group dream of, of qualifying for Conan Racing. You see it time and time again that they'll, they'll race hard for a few seasons and then they, they know where and they've just really burnt themselves out. Do you feel lucky that you've almost avoided that? Yeah, for, yeah, I do for, for sure. And, um, uh, I, and now especially... Uh, I actually quite enjoy the fact that it's it's part of um, it makes it when when triathlon is your full time job and that's all you have it's quite different to when it's just your hobby and when it's just your hobby you, the the flame stays keeps burning for much longer I think. Now, how do you? you know, I, sorry, sorry no, I was just going to say. Go for it. I, <laughs> I was going to say that I now um, you know I, I can't wait to get training again. Whereas know that when I was just training full time there was periods where you you actually dread training and now i actually look forward to my alarm going off in the morning so i can get up and go swimming <laughs> that's awesome but how often is that the case too where you'll see an athlete who's who's promising and and is on the verge of turning pro and, and decides to turn pro and all of a sudden they were working full-time now they're not and and their, their performance almost goes backwards because now this is all they're doing and, and and you speak about the analysis or paralysis by analysis they end up just really over analyzing everything and it's almost to their detriment sometimes you want them to continue working because they're a better athlete when they they're really busy yeah and i think that's very true and i don't think it's just pro pro analysis by um, paralysis by analysis but i also think it's a lot to do with mindset and the ability to actually switch your mind off from racing and training and onto something different i think that's quite a healthy thing to be able to do um i think the problem when you're full-time and you're a triathlete that ability to focus on other things and not think about training and racings um can be problematic one of the things that pops up time and time again here on the Kona Edge is, is the time management side of things and, and balancing and keeping all the balls in the air that you need to juggle. You're extremely busy. You, you're a sports scientist. You work with some, some really good athletes, and we'll touch on, on some of the people you work with in a moment, uh, and not just in the triathlon sphere, but you're also a great athlete in your, in your own right. How do you get that balance right? You're married. You, you've got a, a domestic life to worry about. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the greatest challenge of all age group triathletes trying to get to get to Kona. Um, I mean, I'm quite fortunate in that 
I do have a lot of sports equipment at my disposal all the time. So even when I'm at work, I've got a gym, you know, in the office and a pool. You know, if I'm, if I'm here in Auckland, they've got a pool, a 50-meter pool in the office as well. So it's quite easy for me to go down at lunchtime and have a swim, for example, or jump on the treadmill or, you know, just jump on a trainer. So um, that, that does make my life a, a little bit easier. But at the same time, when it's really on, say it's really on a rowing, those those guys they're training all 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 day, right? So they'll be on the water at seven o'clock in the morning, which means getting a session in before they're actually training, like most people would do, is really very difficult. So um, so yeah, it has its challenges, but I think um, I've done it for so long. I've just got very good at planning my my days and my weeks, and I'll always I'll always have the training that I want to do, and I will the next the the previous day before I'm set out to do it, I'll make sure that you know those those times are. Um, I blotted out so I can get that that training done, and um, yeah, just make sure that the the training's of the right type and um, quality. Yeah, you, you mentioned planning, and I think that's exactly what it what it boils down to. You also touched on the rowers. Let's talk about your trip to Rio with uh, with the New Zealand rowing team. I think you had eleven boats uh, racing in in Rio. It was a, a pretty successful trip, wasn't it? Yeah, we got um, we got two gold and one silver medal from the rowers, which was. Yeah, to be honest with you, it was actually we were actually slightly disappointed with that result. We actually we wanted um, we had a target of getting five medals, but we came up um, we came up a bit short. But you know that is the beast of the Olympics. It's a very different. It's a very different game to the World Championships and other other competitions. But you know you, you've got to take the wins where you get them right. And um, you know two golds and a silver isn't isn't too shabby. So yeah, it was um, it was good. It was a long a long time away. I was away four months in total before the before the Olympics, and I'm pretty happy to be back into some normal life now. I'm sure, I'm sure. But but it's incredible to be part of uh, an event like that. I mean, the London Games in 2012 were spectacular. Rio, obviously very different. I had friends who went to both, and, and both had uh, the positives, both had the negatives. But uh, it's just, I mean, the Olympics, for an athlete to, to perform is, is almost a once-in-a-lifetime. If you get the opportunity, you have to go. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I was fortunate enough to be at I went to London and I went to Rio, um, but yeah, the uh, there were two very different games. But it, I think that's that's also comes in. I think that's a part of the skill is the the ability for the athlete to have the right mindset and adapt to the challenges. Because with rowing, especially, there was a lot of challenges with events changing and times of day changing with the weather and the the situation. And uh, the best athletes are the ones who could deal with it in a positive mindset and not let it affect them. And you know, and they're um, and I think that's quite quite a skill. As far as the approach goes to, to, to training a rower, possibly for Olympic success, to, to training a triathlete for, for world championship success, yes, they're two very different sporting codes, but from a, a mindset perspective and, a, and, a, and a, a sort of scientific thinking behind it, how, how similar are the two? Well, I think, I think that winning mindset, I mean, kind of this goes out of my area of physiology, I guess, a bit, but I guess it's more in the realm of psychology and coaching. But um, the, the mindset thing it's just a, that, that winning mindset i believe is the same whatever sport you're in and um and there's one thing that i've learned over the years of just being around guys who are multiple olympic gold medal winners and multiple world champions they they have a very different mindset to the people who aren't who aren't winning in that they see they really really and it's quite hard to explain but they really do see winning and and nothing else and that's all they that's all they can vision it's like it's like the the, the world doesn't exist Till there's no world after the Olympic Games. Everything goes towards the Olympic Games, and after that, it's just a black hole. 
um, and everything is around winning on the day and putting yourself in the position where winning is everything. And that's kind of um, what those real, the real winners tend to do. And they and they can't and they can't understand. We have one one rower um, have a have a men's pair, and they've they've never lost a they haven't lost a race in sixty nine. They haven't lost a race in sixty nine races um, five times. Well, I think it's five or seven times world champion, double Olympic gold medal winners, and um, world record holders. And the guy who's in the stroke seat of that boat is quite incredible. And when you speak to him, he he literally can't understand losing it's a funny thing to it's a funny thing to speak to someone like that and it's quite hard to explain but you speak to him about it and he he, he can't fathom how anyone can possibly do it it's quite it's quite remarkable that, that is incredible dan you, you you did a phd on heart rate variability uh and we we chat lots about heart rate and power and and the numbers I, I love the fact that, I mean, a lot of people are moving, I don't want to say away from heart rate, but there's still so much that you can glean out of that information, and it's obviously something you're quite passionate about. Yeah, um, I guess there's, there's differences between what I did for my PhD, heart rate variability, and, and heart rate. I mean, the heart, my PhD concentrated on heart rate variability, and that was more looking at morning resting heart rate variability to um, to look at, adaptation to training to work, know whether you need to do more or less training basically um you know it's kind of get that idea of overreaching or what you might call overtraining to see to see if you can pick it out um which goes obviously is really good for when you're training very hard and under a very heavy training load or you've got a lot of life stresses and um yeah and i use that a lot with my athletes and with myself but um yeah people have moved away from training with heart rate but I, I really think it's an absolute mistake <laughs> for people not to train with a heart rate monitor. I, I love that. I, I mean, I know a lot of people are saying that they get, tie- they get tied up in the numbers and they, they almost forget what their body feels like. But that heart rate variability, particularly, like you say, the, the morning one, there's so much information you can pull out of that. Yeah, you can. Yeah, and you can, um, you know, you could almost guide your training on a daily basis, basis on what, you know, what your morning resting heart rate say. Um, and there's lots of apps and, and things now that you can just buy online that will give you that kind of information. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think people who are really interested in the area should definitely experiment with it's possible, you know, the possibility of using heart rate variability as part of the training, especially once they're, you know, some people are trying to go to Kona, um, especially age groupers, they have the good thing about um, the high variability is, is it measures your autonomic nervous system. So it's an overall, it's a measure of overall stress. So sympathetic, sympathetic stress being um, like fight or flight, and then the parasympathetic system, which is kind of the rest and digest, which is your more relaxation. And that sympathetic system we can get ramped up by a variety of life stresses, lack of sleep, um, too much, too much poor food, um, and just you know, just generally stressful meetings or being around in stressful situations, and that would show up in the higher variability as well as um, the training. And I think for age group athletes, that's that's a key consideration. Dan, you've also been uh, quoted as saying uh, the difference between you and a lot of other coaches is is when they think of science, they think of certainty. For you, you don't think it, its role is to give certainty, but it's to reduce uncertainty. It's quite a quite an interesting take on things. I, I like it. Can you can you delve into that a little bit more? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, I think when it when it comes to especially as a sports practitioner and we're giving um, you know we're helping athletes make or coaches make decisions 
you, there's no such thing as a as a as a certain decision. I don't think like so. Say an athlete comes to me, and they and the or a coach comes to me, and they say, "This person's not looking like great. I'm considering doing X," and then you can look at the data and you can inform their decision and give them more certainty. You can give them so that their decision becomes less uncertain. It's not just a feeling of maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. It become it reduces the uncertainty in the decision that they might already be making, and that's what. And that's what that's what good sports science is. It's you might wake up in the morning, you might not be feeling that great. You might look at then you can plug up your heart variability, and that just confirms um, a decision that you were you were already thinking you were of making. So it reduces the uncertainty in that in that decision, and that's um, and that's what sports science is. It's not about this is definitely the answer, and it's it's fact or fiction. Um, it's just yeah, it's about reducing the uncertainty in in that decision that might be be made. And so often people get caught up on the, because it says so in science, that's it. It's the be-all and end-all, and they, they don't move from it. And that, that is a, a huge mistake, isn't it? Yeah, and especially in sport, because we're all individual and we all respond differently. And, um, yeah, um, we often get caught up in studies. No, that doesn't work. This is best, but it's all it's all means and standard deviations, right? And um, you can you can best assured that some things that have no effect is because there's just a wide variation in the response. So that means the average the average is um, the average is not like great, but then the standard deviation is really high, which means that you don't get an effect. But in some people, it actually might have an effect. So um, altitude would be a prime example. If you look at the literature, altitude shows that it's, it's more likely points that it really doesn't have that great an effect, but Clearly, in a lot of individuals, they swear by it, and um, you know a lot of elite athletes swear by it. So, you know, I don't think you can. I mean, I'm a scientist, right, and I believe in the papers and publications, but I don't. You know, I'm also quite practical. I'm more of a practical scientist rather than an academic scientist. Um, so, yeah, I think you you have to look at the individual as well as the um, as long as the means and the general population. Dan, something we haven't spoken about much uh, here on the podcast is is doping, and and I'd love to get your sort of thought on it, and 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 just particularly in the age group ranks, uh, there, there is obviously more and more testing starting to happen, and we're seeing more and more athletes getting getting done for doping. Your your thought on it? Should should there be more testing? Is it? I, I mean, we we also know that often the dopers are ahead of the testers. It's 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 a, it's almost like a, a losing battle we're fighting, but it's it's just something that it's not cool that that is plaguing the sport. Yeah, it's interesting. Even I've noticed, like, I've been, in fact, like, like, um, in 2015, I was tested twice as an age grouper, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, yeah, and I, I think, I do think it is rife in age group racing, but it's probably somewhat rife in maybe in the elites. I mean, I don't really, I don't really know. I'm always wary of, I'm, I mean, I, I keep my eye close, I keep my, you know, my eye close to the data and results of, athletes and i just think there are sometimes abnormal performances come out of the woodwork that are very very questionable yeah it does does raise lots of lots of flags from a from an athlete coaching perspective in, in the world of triathlon you work with a couple of of i don't want to say pretty decent they're fantastic athletes caroline stefan and uh, tim van berkel as well um you've got some some pretty decent athletes in your stable yeah yeah so um it's been great working with those two have um, been working with caroline for nearly a year and tim for nearly two years now um yeah and I, 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 yeah we have a we're getting we have a good relationship so i'm going i'm leaving on tuesday to go to boulder 
to be with Tim before we leave Dakota together. And then hopefully we're looking for him to get um, a real solid performance in um, in Kona this year. So fingers crossed, he's in he's in pretty good nick. So awesome stuff. More more, tra- yeah. more traveling on the horizon. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't really feel like getting on a plane again um, at the moment. But um, but yeah, it's gonna it'll be good for Tim, especially the, you know these final build up stages. It's good to have um, a companion and someone around to to keep him on the straight and narrow, so to speak. So. Uh, so no, it'll be good. It'll be, I'm really looking forward to looking forward to it. How much how much of a difference does it make that you're able to do some of the work with the athletes? Maybe maybe not all of it, but uh, being a, a decent athlete yourself does that help a bit as a, as a coach and as a sports scientist? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, with some of the rowers, I will you know I ride with them and cycle with them, and it's good at building relationships and building rapport with the athletes. Um, and when I went, when I'm with Tim, I'll you know I'll might do a few, but I'll do some bites with him and um, don't know if I'll be doing any running with him, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I'll just, I'll just do what I do what I can. It's good. It's good to, for him to have someone there and it keeps him honest. And um, yeah. And uh, again, it builds, it builds a, a good relationship and some of the best, as, as you probably know, some of the best conversations you have with people are when you're exercising. And I've, I always find that you always have a good, um, a good brainstorm and some of the best ideas and the best conversations come when two people are exercising. So that's always a, a positive as well. Mm. On, on a personal note, Kona, uh, it's a special place. What, what, what do you love about the, the big island? Well, to, Kona last year was my first time I've ever been there, to be honest with you. It's, it's actually only my third ever Ironman as well. Um, and it was not, it was just a, it was a real eye opener for me how hard it was, especially it was one of the hottest, the hottest um, Kona's in, I think it was like one of the hottest in 23 years. Um, but I just love the, ma- it has some kind of magical euphoria that's almost tangible. And when you step on down to the uh, pier and you get down to Alley Drive, it's just quite amazing. As, as I speak to you now, actually, I have I have you on my Skype on my on my left screen. I never look to my right on my big screen. I have a picture of the start line at Kona, which is just kind of my permanent backdrop. And it Because it just, <laughs> you know, it gives me such... Um, good fond memories of just being in, in Kona and that, that magic, magical place. You mentioned how hard it is. It, it must be pretty tough coming out of a, uh, I want to say, brutal New Zealand winters because your winters do get quite hectic. Going into a, a race like Kona at the time of the year that it is, it, it, it's, it's tough for the guys, particularly from New Zealand, but from the Southern Hemisphere, you have to train through, through pretty tough winters uh, and go into the almost opposite extreme in, in a race like Kona. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. And I was fortunate last year that I was. Um, so I haven't had a winter in seven years, and people hate me for that because I usually travel to Europe. I usually travel to Europe, and my my wife always says to me, "Because is it?" She goes, "She goes, you didn't know what a winter's like." And I'm like, "Well, well, I have lived in England for quite a while, so that and they're, they're pretty brutal winters." But yeah, I was um, I was fortunate enough that. Um, that I, tra- I was with the rowing team in Europe before I did Kona, so I had a I had a summer in Europe, and it was quite a it was actually a heat wave summer, and it was very hot. And then when I got back to New Zealand, because I'm a I'm an associate with Auckland University, I have a I have the ability to use a heat chamber, so I was um, getting in the heat chamber, and I could and I could put that heat chamber to any temperature I wanted, and I was doing some heat I was keeping my heat acclimation up, and um, and I got to and I arrived in Kona on the Tuesday before the race, which was on the Saturday. And, you know, the heat didn't really, the heat was hot, but I think I actually still cope with it pretty well. And having lived in Singapore for, for four years, I also think 
you, you kind of maintain that plasticity of response and you can actually heat acclimatize quite quickly. Dan, as far as the the bug biting, I mean, you, you said it was only your third Ironman. Uh, once you've once you've experienced and done it, is is it under your skin now? Is it one of those things that you want to keep on doing, or do you feel like you've got it out of your system? You'll keep going back and supporting athletes, but you've had your share. No, I'll, I'll be back for sure next year. <laughs> That's the plan. So I'm, I'm I'm hoping to. I mean, this year was never going to be on the cards because I was just too busy with Rio and I didn't really manage to get the training in, but. Um, 2017 i plan to go back and um hopefully you know i want to win win my age group um so that's the big plan and hopefully i might be able to achieve it so we will see do you think it's a bit of a curse being as competitive as you are or is is that uh, do, do you like like having that sort of built into you no i love it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think yeah, um i probably can be a bit of a um hindrance sometimes you know just not ha- having the ability to switch off, but I'm, I think I'm getting better at that. Um, but yeah, the uh, you know, I think you have to be a bit competitive to, you know, uh, what most people do, Ironman are that A-type personality, and um, I would definitely fall into that boat as well. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you you definitely have to be to to compete at that sort of that sort of level. And, and as far as other than the heat, I mean, what, what made Kona so tough for you in in twenty fifteen? Um, I think I think it's just my I was a bit my first time at racing that course. I think it's quite a hard course mentally, um, especially you know the bike. It's just straight out and back, and then. On the run, when you get up onto that Queen K and it's, you know, it's just a straight, you know, you're basically running along a highway. It's, it's quite tough to keep focus and to keep on your, on your game. And I don't think I was quite mentally prepared, prepared for the level of hurt that I would, that I would have to go through, that I had to go through. Um, and I think that was quite evident in my splits as well. So if I did it again, I definitely approach things a little bit diff- differently and kind of be prepared for the pinch points in the race, that really hard bits. Um, and be ready for them so i mean this year i'm going out in a couple of weeks so it'll be a good opportunity to actually relive, to actually relive some of the course and i'll definitely do the run out to the energy lab and um ride out to harvey and, and just relive some of the some of the memories so i'm ready to i've got it cemented in my mind for 2017 you think you're going to be suffering from fomo on race day that you're not out there but you're on the sidelines um i don't think so i mean I would be if I was really fit, but because I'm not that fit, I um, I think I'll be pleased I'm not I'm not amongst getting amongst it and her, and I'll be too busy um, supporting Tim. And he'll I'll be living vicariously through him. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And then Dan, you, you you mentioned when we first started this chat that you wish you could go back to your 15 year old self and knowing what you know now, what, what would you have done differently? I always ask this question, and, and you brought it up, so I think we can, we can wrap it up there. What would you change? What, what would you do differently to, to what you've, you've done? Um, I guess there'd be two, two things, really. I guess in my 15 is a bit earlier. Maybe my early 20s is probably a better, a better, a better way of looking at it. And um, i do two things differently. I would definitely monitor myself and my homeostatic state much more carefully to the way that I do it now. So I record every session and I'll record everything quite meticulously on training peaks. But also I would have a radical shift in my diet and I would, I'm a huge advocate of the high fat, low carb diet. Um, and for me, that 
has changed. It's really changed my life. I'm, I did a, I mean, I was racing for a long time, and then last year I, I did 3:57 for a half Ironman, which is the, you know the best time I've ever done on very little training. And I really believe that it's uh, just through being smarter in um, you know, in the way I eat, and not just from a fat oxidation standpoint, um, but also from a recovery standpoint. It gives me the ability to sleep less. I, I seem to be able to cope with less sleep, and I seem to be able to recover from sessions, even when I'm under a heavy workload in terms of actual real academic kind of work. So, um, and I just, you know, if I was actually just training, I, think I would bounce back and be a lot healthier as a result. Um, I think it's quite sad that a lot of elite athletes and athletes are fit, but not necessarily healthy. And, uh, and that's because we're pushed by sports nutrition and sports nutrition propaganda to believe that a diet high and refined carbohydrates and sugar is good for us when it's really not. So there you go. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, we're going to dig deeper into that uh, when we do chat about nutrition uh, later on, but we'll save that for another chat. Doc, thank you so much for your time today. Much appreciated. Uh, we look forward to catching up and, and talking about the individual disciplines in, uh, in, in another podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Kona Edge. Don't forget to connect with us on social media. Simply search for The Kona Edge.